Why does it matter what Jesus thinks about this book? Why does it matter what he thinks about anything? Uh, Last week, we read a statement he made. He said, I and the Father are one. And we spent a good deal of time speaking about it. And I tried to make the point that in making that declaration, the Lord Jesus was not saying he and the Father are one person. He's saying we're one in purpose and in essential identity. So he essentially was claiming to be God. And as evidence of it, I offered to you the response of the Jewish religious leaders to what he had to say. They wanted to prepare to murder him, to stone him for having committed the crime of blasphemy. They heard him to lay claim to divinity. So I made the point that the father is not the son, and the son is not the father, but both the father and the son uh, are God. And because Jesus is God, if you hold to that, I made the point that that's one of the things that uh, holds us together here. One of our beliefs is that Jesus is the second person of the Trinity, and that all three are are God. And so if you subscribe to that belief uh, and submit to the authority of Jesus as God, then that means you also want to submit to his authoritative perspective, his thoughts on all things, including the Bible. What does Jesus have to say about the Bible? And so that's what I'd like for us to focus on tonight. And in John chapter 10, last week, we looked at an unusual statement the Lord made in verse 35, and we won't spend time on it tonight because we did uh, last week. I only want to make a point. In John 10, verse 35, the Lord extracted a passage of Scripture from the Old Testament. It was, to be specific, Psalm 82, verse 6. He quoted, word for word, Psalm 82, verse 6, in support of an argument he was making. And then he tacked on, at the end of that quotation, a brief statement that we kind of passed over last week on purpose. And this is the statement. It consists of six words. See if you could find it in John chapter 10, verse 35, right at the end. He said, and the scripture cannot be broken. Do you have something like that in your Bible? I surely hope you do. You should. And the scripture cannot be broken. And in a mere six words, I think if we slow down and think about it, we will find out what the Lord Jesus thinks about the Word of God. What does the Son of God think, what does he believe about the Word of God? We heard the beliefs of some of the folks in the video, uh, but they're not God, only Jesus is. I hope, therefore, we would defer to his perspective on Scripture. And if you think about these six words, and the Scripture cannot be broken... And that's what we're going to do tonight. I think we will come away with a pretty full-orbed notion of what the Lord's perspective on Scripture is. So to begin with, the word broken in that phrase could get us in trouble because it's not the same kind of uh, thought uh, that we have when we think of a leg breaking or this weekend uh, 
our washing machine broke. That's not exactly what's in view here. The Greek word underlying our English word broken uh, means dismissed, removed, or eliminated. So the Lord Jesus, in saying the Scripture cannot be broken, is essentially saying that Scripture cannot be dismissed, it cannot be removed, it cannot be eliminated. Folks, in sum, that's the Lord's view of Scripture. Though all manner of things are subject to change and dispute, transformation and being even discredited, though all things can be ignored, declined, and proven to be erroneous, no, that's not true of this one thing, Scripture. The Scripture cannot be dismissed. It cannot be removed. What God said and what has been enscripturated, written in the 66 books of the Bible, cannot be denied, dismissed, removed. It has an enduring quality. If God said it, it stands. It can't be broken by time. It can't be uh, broken by criticism, by misinformation, by denial, by anything. In other words, once, from the point of view of the Lord Jesus, once God has said something, That scripture cannot be changed. It can't be interfered with. It cannot be kept from being fulfilled. And today I was thinking about how meaningful that is to me and I hope to you as well. Because we're living in a very disturbing time. Um, Nothing is going well. That's a terrible thing to say. (laughs) We're supposed to build each other up. But I think it's just a reality. Everything is broken not in the sense, again, of a washing machine breaking down or something like that. Everything is shaky. And in this very tumultuous and shaky and unstable day, you and I need to take a stand on something that's solid and that isn't subject to change and vacillation and that isn't unstable. And folks, it's the scripture We're all aware of newsworthy items today. We have no choice. It's on our phones, on our computers, and all the rest. And it's all bad news. And we could become really without hope because of all that's broken. But the Lord says, but the Scripture cannot be broken. If God said it, and he did, what's contained in it will be fulfilled. Now more than ever, you and I have to run to it in order to keep our spiritual heads above water. We can become cynical and pessimistic. We can become unduly depressed. We can put our head in the sand. We may not want to get out of bed in the morning. The news and what's going on in our country and internationally is so potentially discouraging that we could really find ourselves not to be very fruitful uh, members of the body of Christ and not functioning as salt and light, we have got to find something that doesn't change, that's not subject to man's opinion, that cannot be broken. And in six words, the Lord Jesus is telling us that's the word of God. The scripture cannot be broken. Institutions are being broken. Uh, politically, even in our churches, there's so many things that are not going right. But the one source of authority, Scripture cannot be broken. In fact, 
I think the Lord is strongly implying that the ultimate and unchangeable, incontrovertible source of authority that you'll see he relies on and that therefore we ought to are the scriptures. Now, folks, there are three, it seems to me, sources of authority when it comes to religious or spiritual matters. And the first is human religious tradition. Mine is Judaism. Lots of traditions. You may come from backgrounds of your own before you ended up in this place, for instance. It doesn't mean that's all bad by no means, but the Lord doesn't say human religious tradition cannot be broken. He only says that of Scripture. So one source of authority is human religious tradition. A second is personal experience. You know where folks have some kind of religious experience and attach authority to it. I'm not saying that those two sources of religious authority are without value, but the highest source of religious and spiritual authority is the Bible. And it's the only one of which the Lord says it cannot be broken. Human religious tradition can be proven to be untrue and inconsistent with Scripture. Scripture can invalidate even our personal subjective religious experience, but those things cannot stand in judgment of Scripture from the Lord's point of view. We have to subsume human religious a tradition and personal experience to the authority of Scripture, because those six words are said by the Lord only with respect to the Bible, and the Scripture cannot be broken. So, so, so when we scrutinize other sources of authority, we always do it through the lens of Scripture. We don't look to ecclesiastical bodies that stand above the text, and though we would respect each other's personal religious traditions and human religious experience, we would subject those to the Scripture. We would not subject the Scripture to human tradition and subjective experience. Now, that's not something we just do here. That's what the Lord said in an economy of words. And the Scripture cannot be broken. It's not subject to being judged, criticized, diminished, denied, disrespected. It cannot, it will not give way to any other source of authority. We must take a stand on it because it stands incontrovertibly true, what it contains will be fulfilled word for word, just as it says. There's no error in it, and the Lord Jesus looked to it as if it's the highest source of authority. So since, in the eyes of the Lord Jesus, who laid claim to divinity, if in his eyes the Bible possesses the highest authority, we must subject all other things to it, So we don't succumb to the attitude of the day. We don't vote on it. We don't look to the majority point of view with regard to finances or human sexuality or any of those things. We look to the highest source of authority because all those other things can be broken, diminished, changed, challenged, found to be untrue and inconsistent. But the Lord Jesus says that cannot be the case with this, and the scripture, he said, cannot be broken. All else is subject to change, but not this. 
some of the comments in the video were that it's old and not relevant. Well, I find that not to be true. If it's the product of a living Savior, it has a living dynamic quality to it so that it could read people who are reading it at any time and in all places. It's living and active. It's not dead letters on pages. It's not like anything else. It's very relevant because its author is the giver of life who transcends time and culture. So the Lord says it cannot be broken. Now, why does he attach such value to it? Why does he see it to be the highest authority with regard to what we are to believe and behave? We call that faith and practice. Why is the Lord telling us we should submit to the Bible as the standard, as the ultimate authority with regard to how we behave and what we believe. I think the answer is found in a verse of Scripture you're familiar with. It's 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. And the first phrase simply says, All Scripture is inspired by God. So, though God used people to write the Bible, for sure, some of the people in the video are right about this, Still, he so superintended the process that he breathed out and into them what he wanted to extract from them, which they would write down for us and which we would have to this very day. It's called the doctrine of inspiration. Though God, the divine author, used human authors, he so superintended the process that what they wrote, even though it came through their unique personalities, still the product of what they wrote was so overseen and superintended by God, so breathed out and into them that what we have is inspired scripture. So the doctrine of inspiration is very, very important. Because the authority of the Bible flows directly from the inspiration of the Bible. The reason why it's the highest authority is because it is inspired by the highest authority, by Almighty God. So Jesus is saying, when he said the scripture cannot be broken... He is declaring the ultimate authority of the Bible due to the ultimate authority of God who inspired the Bible. Now, the Lord at the time is embroiled in a heated controversy with Jewish religious leaders in Jerusalem. His very life is at stake. In fact, it is their intent to murder him. They will succeed in a few months beyond John chapter 10, chronologically. So his life is at stake. And though this is a very critical time in his life, what does he do in response to them? He quotes scripture to them. He makes recourse to nothing else but scripture. He bases his whole argument in John 10, 35, on the authority and absolute trustworthiness, frankly, of a fairly obscure passage of Scripture, Psalm 82, verse 6. He bases his whole defense and argumentation on the authority and absolute trustworthiness of Scripture. And he used Scripture, the Lord did, not only in his response to human 
religious opponents, he also made recourse to Scripture when confronted by Satan. Now, you are familiar with this, but let me refresh your memory. In the, the Gospels, I'm, I'm going to refer to one in particular, Matthew chapter 4. We read this well-known account <clears throat> in Matthew. <clears throat> Excuse me, Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness. He had been baptized in the River Jordan. It was a glorious occasion, as you recall. A dove descended upon him, and there was this declaration from on high This one is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. It was a glorious experience, and then hot on the heels of it, the Lord now is being led into the desert to be tempted by the devil, and not under ideal circumstances. Matthew 4, verse 2 tells us, after he had fasted, the Lord that is, 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. You see, he's God in the form of man. And as such, he experienced all that humankind experienced, but for sin. So he experienced quite intense hunger, having fasted for a lengthy period of time. He's in a weakened state. He's in the desert. There are predatory animals there. I've been into this Judean wilderness. It is a very unwelcoming environment. I just want you to know his state when the evil one sought to tempt him. And in verse 3 of Matthew 4, that's what happened. The tempter, that Satan, came and said to him, If you are the Son of God. If you back up to Matthew chapter 3, you'll see he has been declared by God the Father to be the Son of God. But you see, this is Satan's approach, calling into question Scripture. So he said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he, the Lord, answered and said, I'll bet you have this in your Bible, three words, it is written. And then he quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 8, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. He's in a weakened state, having been deprived of food for a considerable period of time. He's alone. He's in a barren and dry wilderness, and the evil one tempts him, and he makes recourse to written scripture. It is written. Well, uh, Satan doesn't back off. Verse 5, the devil took him into the holy city, that's Jerusalem, and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. And said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. And now you have Satan, the Bible teacher. Throw yourself down, for it is written, here he's quoting scripture, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Here is Satan extracting something from Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12. It's one thing to quote scripture, many do. It's another thing to quote it accurately and in context and with application, none of which the evil one does here. So Jesus said to him in verse 7, on the other hand, it is written, 
Here he goes again. It is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And for the second time, he quotes scripture. Again, it's a passage from Deuteronomy. And in verse 8 of Matthew 4, we read again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said to him, go, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him alone. And that's the third time he invokes written scripture to deal with satanic attention, a vicious onslaught when he was in a very weakened condition. Three times he happened to quote from Deuteronomy, which I believe is the most often quoted book uh, we have the Lord referring to in the New Testament. Well, three times under harsh conditions uh, in the wilderness and without food, three times under these conditions, he's tempted by Satan, and three times he responds with the same three words, it is written. He invokes scripture. Now, these are very significant words, these three, because he could have said, and God said. We would understand what he meant by that. He could have said three times, and God said, but he didn't say that. He said, it is written. And in so doing, he is authenticating not merely the spoken word of God, but the written word of God, this that we possess in our hand here. He is authenticating and corroborating not merely the spoken word of God, but the spoken word of God which has been written down and scripturated. So I... Uh, Respect the points of view of folks on the street with regard to the Bible, but I'd rather submit to the point of view of the God-man, Jesus Christ, who essentially is uh, referring to the written word of God as if it is reliable, authoritative, infallible, and inerrant. That's what he does. And he defeated the enemy with the power of God's word, nothing else. Now, by way of contrast, there was another well-known recorded time of satanic temptation in the Bible. You're familiar with this one. It involves our forebears, Adam and Eve. This one took place, however, not in a barren desert, but in a paradise-like garden. The Lord's temptation was under the worst of conditions. Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden, lush and they were well supplied. And in this setting, we read this in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent, that's Satan, was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. So Satan utters a question. He put it to Eve. Has God said? Notice the first satanic attack recorded in the Bible is an attack on God's authority. Has God said? That's an attack on God's authority. Satan's question calls into question God's word. Has God said, Eve? Did he really say that? And Interestingly, God did not say what Satan said he said. <laughs> 
Satan asks, indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? Did God say that? What did he say? One tree. Satan is always about making the requirements of the word of God look more demanding than they are. Has God said, an attack on God's authority, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. God never said this. In fact, I'll tell you what he said. It's in Genesis chapter 2. You could read it for yourself. Verses 16 and 17. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you shall surely die. So Satan is calling into question the authority of God's word, and then he's distorting it, by the way. And again, as with the Lord in the wilderness, Satan quotes scripture. But he does not do so accurately. He makes it say something it doesn't say at all. He quotes scripture, but really he twists what he's quoting. And here's what happened. Genesis 3, verse 2. The woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. Eve's doing pretty good thus far. But here's where she blows it, verse 3. But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said you shall not eat from it or touch it lest you die. Did God ever say that? She could have built a treehouse in that thing if she wanted to. He never said you can't touch it. No, 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 no. They could do that. So once again, Eve is not clear about the word of God. She doesn't know what God said. She too ends up distorting what God said, and she surely didn't apply it. So in verse 4, the serpent now said to the woman, you surely shall not die. So the first satanic attack was an attack on God's authority, as God said. The second is an attack on God's integrity. Here is the father of lies calling God a liar. God said, when you eat from the fruit of this tree, surely you will die. Satan says you will not die. Now, who are you going to believe? So Adam and Eve were tempted as was the Lord, but under totally different circumstances. They were tempted really under the best of circumstances. They were in a paradise-like garden, yet they failed. The Lord, on the other hand, was tempted in a very dangerous wilderness and succeeded. What's the difference? How did they fail while he succeeded? He succeeded by knowing, by invoking, by leaning on the authoritative, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. Don't make living the successful Christian life more mysterious and complicated than it is. Our Savior, our Lord, who is the God-man, rested on Scripture because he believed, and the Scripture cannot be broken. He knew it. He quoted it. He invoked it. Word for word, he applied it. If this is his attitude towards the Bible, then that must be ours. Don't succumb to so-called fancy academic uh, scholastic critiques of the Bible. Those are by people who don't even know the author of the Bible. And as God has seen fit, if you approach this as its judge and critic, it ends up judging you. But if you approach it as someone who submits to it, yields to it, is willing to 
sit at the feet of its author, you will know of the truth, and the truth will set you free. So a terrible outcome took place because of Genesis 3. You and I are still struggling with it today. We do die. Every funeral reminds me that Satan is a liar and God told the truth. And it all had to do with misunderstanding of Scripture and refusal to lean on it in an authoritative way. So uh, I, I would like for you to listen to 2 Timothy 3.16 once again, I referred to it earlier, but now the whole of it. All Scripture, and I hope your translation has that word all. All Scripture is inspired by God. That's the part we referred to earlier. Now it tells us what it does. And is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So please notice the extent of inspiration. All Scripture. I'm not making that up, am I? When we talk about divine inspiration, some people will say, well, the thoughts contained in the Bible, the thoughts of its various authors are inspired, but not the actual words. No. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, all Scripture is inspired by God. So that's something we call verbal inspiration. I hope you become familiar with the term. We here hold to verbal inspiration of the scriptures. It's not just the thoughts of the writers God inspired. It's the words, every jot and tittle. We hold to verbal inspiration. And not just that, there's something else, a term you ought to know of. It's called plenary inspiration, meaning we hold to the divine inspiration, not just of parts of this book, but all of it. So here we believe in something called verbal plenary inspiration. Now you know what that means. Verbal, it means every word. And plenary, it means the totality of what is contained within the covers of this book, from Genesis to Revelation, every bit of it. Now, nobody says we understand it fully, but once again, I don't sit in judgment of the text. The text sits in judgment of me. This is God's word. So we hold to verbal plenary inspiration. And notice, according to 2 Timothy 3.16, how beneficial it is to have a high view of Scripture. It says, all scripture is inspired by God and then profitable for four things. You'll see it there in 2 Timothy 3.16. The first is for teaching. So you know what the Bible does? It tells you how to live, how to walk in life. Then it says for reproof. So it tells you, it teaches you, go this way. But then it also is beneficial in terms of offering reproof if you get off track. It'll reprove you. When you read the Bible, it'll do that. This has happened to you. It's called conviction. So the Bible is profitable for teaching. Stay on track. But if you get off, it's, it's profitable for reproof. And then it says for correction, tell you how to get back on track. So first it can reprove you and tell you, hey, you're straying. But then it can correct you, tell you how to get back on track. And then it says it's profitable also for training in righteousness, meaning it'll help you stay on track. That's what the Bible does. No other book can do that. Only this book has that authority and power. Only this book is 
characterized by verbal plenary inspiration. All scripture is so inspired by God, so infused by his spirit that it is profitable for those four things. It can tell you how to live. It can tell you when you're not living that way. It can tell you how to get with the program. It can tell you how to stay on track. What other book can do that? You show me. So there are some, however, who say there are errors in the Bible. We heard that from some in the video, and you hear it all the time. Well, how do you respond to someone who tells you, yeah, the Bible, uh, you read it if you want to, but it's filled with errors? Well, a cutesy response is to simply say to that person, show me one. That's always a good thing to say. Or sometimes I like to say, undoubtedly, you've read it. Have you read it? I like to do that, but that's a little insulting. Here's what really settles the matter for me. Uh, The doctrine of inspiration, to me, is what supports the doctrine of biblical inerrancy. Inerrancy means without error. The doctrine of inspiration that we spoke about supports, to me, the doctrine of biblical inerrancy. In other words, every word of the Bible is true because every word of the Bible has been inspired by God. And God does not inspire an erroneous product. That settles the matter to me. I did not write this, neither did you. If we did, it would be subject to errors. But divine inspiration to me persuades me of the inerrancy of the scripture. In other words, if God tells the truth, and he does, and if God inspired or breathed out the scriptures into people who recorded it, and he did, then there is no error in the Bible. In fact, one of the Lord's strongest statements to this effect about the written word of God is found in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 and 18. I'll read it to you. The Lord says, do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. That's verbal, plenary inspiration, not just thoughts and concepts in a general sense. The Lord is saying every stroke, every jot, every letter, none of it is irrelevant. None of it is subject to change. None of it will pass away. The heavens and the earth may, but not the word of God. Why? And the scripture cannot be broken. Jesus, in summation, believed in the authority, the inspiration, the inerrancy, and the reliability of Scripture. And because of that, I would like to suggest so too should we. I'm not really worried about having a response to every critic of the Bible. I'm really not. I'm more concerned about my willingness to yield to the Savior's perspective on the Scripture because I can't help but being convinced of this. How could it be that the Son of God would be wrong about the Word of God? And I just found out what the Son of God thinks about the Word of God and the Scripture 
cannot be broken. It can't be diminished. It can't be removed. It cannot remain unfulfilled. In this very unstable, somewhat scary day in which we live, where you can't count on anyone, our heroes are proving to be not so heroic almost every day today on every front. Things are just changing and are up in the air. Every day there's some kind of surprise revelation of some misdeed, immorality, scandal, or who knows what. Where are we going to run in order to remain hopeful and above the fray and positive and optimistic? The only thing that cannot be broken is the Scripture. The Lord Jesus said so. Folks, run to the Scripture. Now we do it today not so much for information. We do it for survival. Where are you going to go? For emotional, psychological, spiritual well-being. Other than the Scripture, which cannot be broken. It can't be taken away. It cannot be disputed. It cannot be diminished nor denied. Everything in it will be fulfilled. I'm getting to the point where I don't know who you can trust. But I know when I read this, I can trust the writers because they've been inspired by Almighty God who tells the truth. Now, folks, if Jesus is God, and he is, he declared it to us in the text last week. If Jesus is God, he is. And if God tells the truth, he does. Then what Jesus said about the Bible satisfies me, and I hope you as well. He said the scripture cannot be broken. Now, there was a writer, and he wished to remain unknown, apparently, because we don't know what his name was, but he wrote a very glorious paragraph, seems to me, about the wonders of scripture. I simply would like to read it to you, and we'll close with it. Here's what he said. This book, referring to the Bible, is the mind of God and the state of man. It is the way of salvation. It is the doom of sinners and the happiness of believers. Its doctrines are holy. Its precepts are binding. Its histories are true. And its decisions are immutable. Read it to be wise. Believe it to be safe. Practice it to be holy. It contains light to direct you, food to support you, and comfort to cheer you. It is the traveler's map, the pilgrim's staff, the pilot's compass, the soldier's sword, and the Christian's character. Here, paradise is restored, heaven is opened, and the gates of hell disclosed. Christ is its grand subject, our good its design, and the glory of God, its end. It should fill the memory, rule the heart, and guide the feet. Read it slowly, frequently, prayerfully. It's a mine of wealth, a paradise of glory, and a river of pleasure. Follow its precepts, and it will lead you to Calvary, to the empty tomb, to a resurrected life in Christ. Yes, to glory itself throughout eternity. This book set me free. How about you? And I'll tell you why the written word of God can do that. Because the characteristics of this written word of God parallel the characteristics of the living word of God, the Lord Jesus. He is sinless and this is without error. If I want to know him, I can run to the pages of Scripture right here. And it gives me an accurate notion of who God is and who I am. And I found out in reading this book, so too have you. I would 
imagine most of you, I found out why Jesus came. He's the central theme of the Bible, and it's simple. He came to save me and you sinners by birth and by nature. That's why he came. That's the message of this book. In fact, in this book, in John's Gospel, we read some time ago the words of Jesus. He said, truly, truly, as if he has to keep emphasizing the truthfulness and reliability of Scripture. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, put your name in there. I say to Stuart, put your name in there. I say to you, he who hears my word. That's not enough. And believes him who sent me has eternal life. What's more? That one will not come into judgment. That one has passed from death into life. Has that happened to you? If not, why not tonight? You have heard an excerpt from the Word of God enough. And they're not my words. They're the words of Jesus. Truly, truly, he's beseeching. He's imploring. He's telling you, this scripture cannot be broken. Take a stand on it by faith. He who hears my word, I don't want to hurt you, but you're without excuse. You just did. He who hears my word and believes him who says the hardest thing for us. Because we want to behave up to par so as to earn God's favor. But the Bible says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Come on, you know that, so do I. You know what you're made of in thought, word, and deed. And so the Lord so graciously said, no, I don't need you to work for salvation. I need you to believe that I have already uh, provided it for you in my blood. He who hears my word and believes him who sent me. What do you get? eternal life. You see, you're saved from judgment and death. Why? Because we're subject to the wrath of God as ones who have sinned against his unbreakable holy word. Everyone here has in thought, word, and deed. And what Jesus did was to absorb the fullness of the wrath of the Father on his shoulders so as to relieve us of the agony of having to suffer and die throughout eternity. And he said, you either will suffer throughout eternity dead in your sin, or you'll accept the fact that I died for your sin in your place. He who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He doesn't come into judgment. I'm fearing a lot of things these days. I must admit to you. I guess I'm ashamed to admit it. I'm fearing a bunch of stuff, but I'm not fearing dying, <laughs> and I'm not fearing what happens when I die. He who hears my word, I'm so grateful for the man in the military years ago who told me of Jesus' word. And then I'm so grateful for God to stirring me up, enabling me to accept the fact of my own sin and his merciful willingness to save me. And I believed on him September 5th, 1973, and I became an heir of eternal life. I don't fear standing before God to be judged because when there, though that same temper and evil, evil one may bring up a whole array of my sins before the Father, I'll have a plea. It's just one. That's all I need. I'll say, Father, Satan is right. I'm guilty of all those charges. But your beloved son suffered and died for me. And I can hear it right now. I hear the father saying, case dismissed. Go free. 
This is a day of all kinds of questions and uncertainties, but what matters most we can really be certain about, where are you going to spend eternity? I know exactly where I'm going to spend eternity because I put my faith in a statement made in this Bible which cannot be broken. Truly, truly, I say, you notice I'm repeating this a lot, and I'll tell you why. In our staff meeting today, we had discussion about many things, good things, not so good things, but the pastor, um, part of the discussion reminded us of how important it is uh, when we gather together in church to remind each other that we're not guaranteed another day. Not one person here knows if we're going to arrive home safely. It would be a tragedy if something befell one of us who know Christ on the way home, but not so tragic. because that person would immediately be with the Father. But what if you're apart from a loving Savior who has provided everything necessary for you to be reconciled to him, but you either didn't know about it or you refused it? And what if we didn't remind you time and time again that Jesus offers a grand invitation, come to me, I love those words, and I'll give you rest from doubt, from anxiety about your future, about eternity, and about death and dying. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you, I'll give you rest. Folks, we don't know what the future holds, but, but we don't have to worry about it because the scripture cannot be broken. I beseech you, if you, having now heard the word of God, have not placed your faith in it until tonight, do it tonight, right where you sit. Say, Lord Jesus, I've heard your words. Please hear mine. I accept your offer. It's a grand and glorious offer. It's overwhelming to me because of the freeness thereof, but I will question it no longer. Come into my life. Fill me with your presence. Change me from the inside out and do this thing, Lord. Forgive my sin, for I am a sinner. Make me the person you choose me to be and give me this hope of eternal life, And for the constancy of your presence from now throughout eternity based upon what you've done for me on the cross. I beseech you to make that decision. Everything is uncertain in terms of our duration here uh, 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 in this particular life. Why not secure the certainty of your eternal salvation? Uh, More than ever... I'm uh, persuaded of the truthfulness of that message because I found it right here. And the scripture cannot be broken. Lord Jesus, thank you for coming as the living word. And then after you died and rose up from death and ascended to heaven, you didn't leave us without help. You left us with the written word, which is a perfect parallel to who you are and in it, We can find the way home. We can find the way to peace and joy and goodness and kindness and self-control and all those things we don't inherently possess. So I pray a simple prayer. Would you save those here tonight who have not yet been saved? Saved from wrath to come. Saved from the penalty of sin. Saved, redeemed to enjoy you forever. I pray in the power of your Holy Spirit you might do this tonight. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you folks.